You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are really glad that you're here with us. So let me tell you, one night I get home from church and my oldest daughter, Mia, says to me, Dad, those pretzilla pretzels that you opened went stale. Now, sidebar. How many of you know what pretzilla pretzels are? Okay, see, I have four people. All right, you guys are going to be enlightened and they're going to sell out at Publix. Listen, pretzilla pretzels, they come in these little plastic buckets and they are, imagine a soft pretzel but about the size of a ping pong ball. They are amazing. And you can eat a few of them without feeling bad about your personal life choices, which is, they're great, they're great. The only fatal flaw that Pretzilla pretzels have is that the packaging is horrible. The minute that you peel that thing back, it is exposed to the elements and you have maximum 72 hours before uh, they turn into hail. I mean, it's just hard as a rock, stale. So now, so my daughter accuses me of opening the package, of which I did not. And now they're stale. And I said, Mia, don't blame me for things that I didn't do. And she said, Dad, you were standing right here in the kitchen when you opened it. And then you got the saran wrap because you know their packaging is trash. And you said, Mia, this is what I do. I solve problems. And I'm like, first of all, I don't even sound like that. Secondly, I didn't say that. And uh, so even though it does sound like something I'd say, but I didn't say it. So my son comes downstairs and Mia says, Xander, did dad open the package of pretzels? And he says, yeah, remember you put that saran wrap on it and you said, this is what I do, I solve problems. And I'm like, I don't even sound like that. And, uh, and so then my daughter Livy hears the commotion and she comes downstairs and Mia asks, Livy, did dad open the pretzels that are stale now? And she says, dad, how could you let this happen? You, you said that putting the saran wrap would fix it. And you said, and I quote, this is what I do. I solve problems. And I realized at that moment that all three of my kids had lost their minds. And, uh, and, and, and anyway, I was wrong. So I ate a stale pretzel. What are you going to do? But you know, joke's on them. I haven't bought pretzilla since that day. So that's me anyway. But just it's like my subtle parenting. But here, here's, here's the thing. Every single one of us should seek to be problem solvers. It's such an important skill. I talk to leaders at Calvary about this all the time. Anybody can identify a problem, but it takes a leader to solve a problem. And here's why I think this is important for us today is because all of us are dealing with problems. Some of us are dealing with problems on a few different fronts, right? Some people are dealing with marriage problems or parenting problems, career problems, financial problems, physical problems, emotional problems, to say nothing of problem people and or your in-laws. And so, and I know some of you have in-laws and others of you have outlaws. So you're dealing with stuff. Now, but your ability to deal with problems in your life and fix them, or at the very least, learn how to handle them gracefully, is a skill that everyone needs. Now, I tell you this because in our text today, we're going to be, we're actually in the 10th message in a series uh, through the book of Acts. If you're newer at Calvary, let me just tell you a little bit about us, kind of how we do things around here is that we, 
are very committed to teaching through the Bible. So we pick books of the Bible and we just work our way through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're covering everything. Everything the Bible talks about, we want to talk about at Calvary. And so we're in the 10th message in the book of Acts, which is the story of the growth and expansion of the church after the resurrection of Jesus. And in our text today, we're going to see a problem. Guess what? Churches have problems. Whenever, if you've been on this planet for longer than, let's say, 15 minutes, you know this. Whenever human beings get together, there's bound to be problems. And, and here's what I love about what the apostles do. You know, the apostles don't ignore the problem. They don't downplay the problem or seek to blame somebody else for the problem. They acknowledge that there's a problem, deal with the problem, and then create a structure so that this issue isn't a problem anymore. And listen, a lot of us have been dealing with issues in our lives, in our homes, in our careers, and all this. And sometimes, if we're being honest, it's the same issue, the same problem that just keeps coming up over and over again. And if we will take heed to what we're going to read, because remember, what these guys are doing is not just solving a problem. They're giving us a template on how to deal with problems and make things better in our lives. Listen, if we will take heed to what is being what we're going to read and implement it, we will have a higher degree of joy in our lives and we will stop dealing with the same problems over and over again. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 6 and we'll start in verse 1. Here's what we read. It says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. If you pause there and give me your attention, three things we're going to talk about as far as solving problems, but here's the first thing, and that is this, that God wants me to have proper priorities. Proper priorities. What's the problem that we, that we see? There's a complaint about the Hebraic Jews concerning the Hellenists. Now, let me explain what that means and give you the background so you understand what's taking place here. Hebraic Jews were Jews who had rejected Greek culture. They spoke Hebrew or Aramaic and lived according to the Jewish customs. They attended a Jewish synagogue, were taught from the Hebrew translation or the original Hebrew of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, which is called, now it's called uh, the Masoretic text. So if you ever read in your Bible and you see a little note that says MT, that's what that stands for, Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew, original Hebrew of the uh, Old Testament scriptures. But they, the Hellenistic Jews were believers who had embraced Greek culture. They spoke Greek. And before coming to know Jesus, they attended a Greek-speaking synagogue. Now, the Greek-speaking synagogue didn't teach from the Masoretic text. That is the Hebrew, the original Hebrew. They taught from the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was translated about 200 BC. If you ever see a note in your Bible that says LXX, that means 70. It's Roman numerals. And that's what Septuagint means. It means 70 because there were 70 translators who translated the original Hebrew into Greek. Uh, the Hellenistic Jews were part of what was called the diaspora. That is Jews who had been scattered throughout the Roman Empire, but had come back to Israel. And while they were living out in the Roman Empire, they had embraced Greek culture. 
So when they returned to Israel, they wanted to live amongst people of similar backgrounds. And so they were Jewish, but culturally they spoke Greek. And, and the easy way to kind of look at this is if, if your family is from somewhere else, you kind of get that. My family uh, is Cuban, and so my parents were like the Hebraic Jews. My, my, my parents uh, who came here, in, in the, they came here in the 1960s, but they held on to the language. Uh, their, their language. They held on to their traditions. They held, held on to the relationships that they had to the homeland and from the homeland of, of, of Cuba. The next generation, like me, were probably more like the Hellenistic Jews because we embraced the new culture that we were a part of, right? Um, we had a culture at home that was, very, uh, that was much more traditional, but then we spoke, and we spoke, a, a, you know, we spoke Spanish at home, but we spoke English everywhere else, and we were probably more comfortable with the new uh, language and the new customs and all that, even though, as my parents continually told me, everything was better in Cuba. And so I did ask my parents once, uh, if Cuba was so great, why'd you leave? And, uh, and when I regained consciousness, um, I knew never to ask that question again. Now, Jews and Hellenists always had this tension because the Hebrew-speaking Jews always felt like they were a little bit of a cut above than, than, than uh, the others. Hellenists were seen as kind of worldly or carnal because they had embraced Greek culture and they were primarily Greek speakers, not Hebrew or Aramaic speakers. But here's the challenge. You have all these people who have now come to know Jesus. They're all following Jesus and they're all being called to worship together, live together, and, and, and love each other. And that's not always a smooth transition because there's a perceived problem. And this is what comes up in Acts chapter 6. The Hellenists believed that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Apparently, the early church had a feeding program uh, for people in need. And so the, they go to the apostles to fix this. The apostles recognize that there's an issue, but they aren't going to get into the weeds. So they tell the people, like, look, here's what I want you to do. Come up with seven people. Seven people who have three qualities we can all agree on, three qualifications. They have a good reputation, they're full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. By the way, sidebar, if you're looking for some people to be friends with, to speak into your life, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, that's a good place to start. Anyway, more on that in a moment. But the first thing that they did is assign a level of priority to this problem. In their assessment, as they were looking at it, was this is not something that's going to take up our time. Does that mean they didn't care? No, they did care, but they realized it was not beneficial for them to stop preaching the gospel so that they could become busboys. So they're like, we're going to deal with this, but we're not going to be the ones who are dealing with this on a day-to-day basis. And there's an important principle here that I want us to talk about. Sometimes, sometimes problems are caused or made worse because we lack proper priorities. A lot of times we're just putting out fires. We're not focusing on the things that matter most. And what happens is there's stuff that we say is a priority, but when we look at the time and effort that we give to things, it's really something else that gets all of our time and attention, not the thing that we say is a priority. Back when I used to run a college, and if you don't know this, I, before coming and starting Calvary, I spent almost five years uh, running a college, which was tons of fun, by the way. And uh, one of the interns that we had is this guy named Brian. Brian is a really nice kid. And his car was the worst piece of junk I've ever been in in my life. And I feel like I'm being kind. Um, And so, uh, but apparently I entered a contest and lost because one day I needed him to drive me somewhere because we only had one car and Carrie had the car. And so I, I said, hey, can you drive me? And we got to pick, I forgot what we had to pick up, but we had to pick something up. So we get to the place and 
we get out of the car and he doesn't lock the doors. He didn't even roll up the windows. And I'm like, hey man, you should lock the doors. And uh, this is not a great neighborhood. Your car could get stolen. And he says to me, he goes, Pastor Bob, this is God's car. If God wants me to have it, then it'll be here when I get back. And if God wants somebody else to have it, it'll be gone. He can do that. And I'm like, okay. So um, anyway, we get the stuff. We come back. Sure enough, the car's there. Because I think even people who wanted to steal the car would be like, we'll pass on this one. We'll look for something else. I wouldn't be caught dead in that thing. Anyway, so about a year later, Brian's parents bought him a new car. And uh, I'm teaching that. I'm teaching one night. And so... Uh, I get done with class, and these were classes are from like 7 to 10. So I'm leaving after I talk to students. I'm leaving at about 10.30 at night. I walk to the parking lot, and I hear someone turn off their alarm because their car's parked next to mine. And sure enough, it's Brian unlocking his car with the little key thing that has all the buttons. And, and, I, and I'm like, hey, man, alarms and locks? What's going on there? I thought, I thought your cars were God's. And, and he just said, he goes, Pastor Bob, things have changed. Be reasonable. <laughs> and he got in his car and left. I'm like, Fair enough. <laughs> I got in my car and I left. And so what, what happened? Priorities change. Because saying something is a priority is only a priority if we follow through with it. And listen, for some of us, our problems would be fixed if we would simply get our priorities straight. I'm, I mean, I see this with parenting all the time. If I want my kids to have proper priorities in their lives, they need to see it in my life. You can't just tell them because kids don't do what they're told. Kids do what's modeled for them. And if you want your kids to put God first, you've got to put God first. By the way, this is one of the reasons, if you're married, one of the reasons that there is tension or problems in, in, in marriage is because of this. It's not because you both don't have priorities. It's because you both have priorities. They just aren't the same priorities or they aren't the same in order of priority. And listen, I have learned something and I don't know why God does this, but I have learned that in marriage, God has a tendency of putting polar opposite people together. You've probably seen this too. You ever seen people and you're like, how in the world how do these two people even like each other, much less decide that, like, I don't want to be with anybody else but you? I couldn't even imagine them being friends. And yet, they're married. This is one of the ways you know there's a God in heaven who loves you, is because, like, wow, if that person can get married, anybody can, right? And so, but there's people who are just polar opposites. And, you know, that's the, the saying, you know, opposites, opposites attract. And then when they get married, opposites attack. And that's how that works. But... But here's what I'm guessing, and um, I didn't do this in the first two services, and I thought that maybe I would try this, and if it really goes haywire, I don't know what to do, all right? But, um, okay, I'm going to try this. We'll see. This is, it takes a moment of honesty to do this, okay? I believe that for most couples, God pairs one person who is a spender and the other person is a saver. Does that sound about right? How many of you would say, I'm a spender? And I'm raising my hand because that's me. All right. How many of you would say, I'm a saver? God bless you. Seriously. You're the one saving money that we can spend later. Seriously. We love you. We're so, <laughs> we're so grateful for you. And because uh, the rest of us would be broke. And so now 
I, I am the spender in, in my marriage. My wife is the saver. And, um, and, and I'll tell you, um, but, and she's like, how do you deal with it? Well, the way you deal with it is you got to be a grown-up. And it's like, I can't spend on that. So that's how that works. But if you guys aren't on the same page, there's going to be conflict. And by the way, it's not because spending your discretionary income is wrong or saving is wrong. Both are good in their context. You've just got to be aligned in your priorities or there's going to be conflict. Because this is really, it's all a matter of values and, and a matter of priority. The person who wants to save everything values security. That's really what it comes down to. That it's, 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 a, it's a value of, of security. It's a priority of security. The person who wants to spend every dollar and more on vacations is a person who values experience. And once again, none of those things are bad. You've just got to get on the same page. By the way, um, because I think some people are like, no, saving is biblical and spending, that's got to be the wrong one. Listen, let me, let me give you this verse that nobody, that nobody knows. Like, they don't realize this. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, look at what it says. It's, Paul says this, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to be arrogant, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, and check this out, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. A lot of people don't know the Bible teaches that, that you should enjoy what God has entrusted to you. That's part of God's plan. Now, the flip side of that is in Proverbs 21, the wise store up choice food and olive oil, right? They're saving, but fools gulp theirs down. They just, the fools consume everything. And so both are biblical principles. The key is you've just got to rightly prioritize them as a couple to get on the same page. And you know what happens when you do? There's harmony. And the things that other people will argue about and have uh, problems with, you don't. Why? Because you have decided that you have similar values and priorities on this issue. Well, look at what happens. They said, we're going to appoint seven guys. And this is in verse five. It says this. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmesas, I always read that. I think I say Parmesan, uh, <laughs> Parmenas, and uh, <laughs> and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when the apostles had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And if you pause there and give me your attention. If the first thing that we talk about, if we want to solve problems, is that we need to have proper priorities. The second thing is, is that the way we solve problems, God wants me to ask for help. The apostles asked the believers to set forth seven names who could help in this situation, and they did. Now, we don't know much about the bottom of the order, but the first two people that are mentioned, Stephen and Philip, will both feature prominently in upcoming chapters in the book of Acts. Stephen, of course, will give an incredible sermon, probably uh, one of the best sermon, probably the best sermon outside of the Sermon on the Mount in uh, chapter 7. And then Philip will feature in chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Acts. But I want you to notice what happens here is that the disciples, they get more people involved because they realize that it's better to get more people involved than it is for them to do it themselves because it engages more people. People start bringing in other uh, talents. They start bringing other spiritual gifts to the table. When we first started Calvary, my wife and I first started Calvary almost 23 years ago, we did everything in those first few months. Uh, my wife ran the children's ministry. She did all the accounting. She took care of all the phones when people were, were calling and asking about stuff. And 
Um, I did all the teaching, the counseling, the leadership. I was also the worship leader. When we would start, this is when we were in the hotel and then when we first started meeting in the theater. Uh, this is that first year. I had a podium set up and then I would lead worship off to the side. And so I would um, welcome everyone. I'd get my guitar. I'd welcome everyone. We'd do a few songs and then I'd pray so that I could take off the guitar and then I'd have everybody say hi to each other so I could take off the guitar and then walk over uh, to the pulpit. Now, if you've ever been to another church in your life, you probably know this, that most churches have you greet right in the beginning of the service. And we don't do that. We do it in the middle. And that is kind of a little tradition that we have because of what happened when I was the original worship leader is that I needed a minute to take off the guitar, put it away so then I could walk over. And so while everybody was saying hi to each other, I, I'd walk over. And I don't know why I would do this. It's such a weirdo thing to do. But... Um, I would act like this was a different person who led worship. And I'd be like, wow, I really appreciate that time of worship. Let's open our Bibles. And then I would give, the, like, anyway, it's like, I'm sure people who are here for the first time, like, this man is not well. And, uh, and then I would get done with the teaching and I'd say, let's pray. And while I'm praying, I'm walking over, I'm grabbing the guitar, I put it on, and then I say amen into the microphone. I'm like, wow, wasn't that a powerful time of teaching? Let's all stand together, like as if this is a different guy. And, uh, and, and anyway, very confusing. Isn't it so much better now that it's like, right? It's so much better now that we have people. Yeah, you just, let's just do it. Let's just clap for everybody. Yeah, yeah, so good. Man, I was listening to that third song. George hit that high note, like reminiscent. It was like John Mayer era 2000, 2001. And it's like, whoa. And I was like, whoa, I couldn't hit that. And, and you wouldn't want me to hit that because it would sound nasty, right? And, uh, and, and so, but it's just so, it's so good. And so, and this is the thing that I think is so, it's so wonderful. We have incredibly gifted people serving in all these areas of ministry. And you know what's happened to me? My life has gotten very focused on the one thing that I'm really good at doing, which is teaching the Bible. And listen, here's the thing that's important for us. The apostles, they have the right priorities. And so now they look for help for other things to get done. This, they knew it was important, but they knew they couldn't be involved in it um, without something else suffering. L let me tell you something. Some of us suffer from a Messiah complex. We think the only way that it can get done is if we get involved. And let me tell you, there's a verse in John 1, 20. I've been saying this for years. You need to just memorize it. This is the words of John the Baptist. He said this, I am not the Christ. You need to speak this to yourself. You need to speak this to other people that are trying to rope you into everything to get involved in. Like, hey, you have me confused with the Messiah. I know him, but I ain't him. And you just got to let people know that. Why? Uh, because God has placed people in our lives who love us and want to help. We don't have to take everything on by ourselves. You know, we just have to be open to receiving the help when it's offered. It's why Proverbs, Solomon would say this in Proverbs. He says that a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. That means that when we need help, we receive it. And as a friend, we are ready to offer help when called upon. When I was running, back when I was running the college, a few of us went to lunch one day. I'll never forget this lunch. Uh, we went to this barbecue place that we would go to pretty regularly. But one of my friends, whose name is Steve, he had a, a big meeting right after lunch. And so at, we, got, um, we got back to church. And so um, we prayed for him as he was going to go into his meeting. Now, it was, like I said, it was a barbecue place. And as we were praying and he was telling me about his lunch, he had the biggest piece of corn I've ever seen stuck in his teeth. 
And I was in, listen, I hate moments like these. I never know what the right thing to do is. Do you say something? Do you not say something? Am I meddling in someone else's business? Like maybe he likes corn that much. I don't know. And so I, I just, you know, so do you, because if you don't say anything, you're wrong. And you're like, oh, you're a jerk. You didn't say anything. If I do say something like, hey, you got like an ear of corn. And, uh, and, and then it's like, they say thank you, but they still think you're a jerk. And I'm like, I can't believe you pointed that out. So I don't ever know what to do. So I just said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to not say anything, but I'm going to pray for the corn to just drop. And so that was my commitment, right? And just like, we're just going to do like, Lord, just, just, just drop that thing. Drop it like it's hot. We're going to do that. And so anyway, so now, so we pray for him and, um, and then we get done. And then my friend Frank, who's standing right next to me, he says, Steve, he's Steve, you got this big, I don't want you to go in that meeting. You got this big thing of corn right, right in your teeth. And I'd hate for you to go into the meeting like that. And, and the first thing that he doesn't even say thank you to Frank. He goes, thanks a lot, Bob. How long were you going to let me have a giant thing of corn before you said something to me? And I'm thinking, that's not my fault. I know how to eat corn without leaving residue. You'd, so anyway, deal, get some corn training. Anyway, Steve and I aren't friends anymore. And <laughs> no, we are, but he did yell at me pretty good um, about that. But listen. Here's, here's the thing that Mr. Corn Teeth taught me, all right, is that sometimes we think that not sharing the truth is the nicest thing to do. It's not. Listen, Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul speaking, here's what he says. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. That's how we grow, according to the Apostle Paul, is when we speak the truth in love to each other. Why? Because the only basis for relating to each other that we have is the truth. We don't want to be around people who won't tell us the truth. Right? You're not going to go to a doctor that's like, oh, he always tells me what I want to hear. No. You want a doctor who's going to tell you the truth. The only person that you want to lie to you consistently is whenever you're out going to buy a scale. That's the only time. When you go buy a scale, let me tell you, you don't even realize this, but this is what everybody does. They're going to buy a scale. They go somewhere where they sell them, and then they stand. They, okay, <laughs> not that one. And let's try this one. Nope. And then you find one, 10 pounds less than what you know you are. Honey, this is the one. Let's do it. So, and then you realize that little wheel at the bottom was all off, and that's why it seemed like that thing was, you know. And so, but listen, you don't want, here's the point. You don't want people, once again, you're not, trying, you're not asking people to be a complete savage towards you when they need to talk to you, but you want people to tell you the truth in a loving way because if you don't, you're going to have a hard time believing them when they do want to tell you a hard truth. Solomon would say in Proverbs 19, listen to advice and accept discipline and you will be counted among the wise. What's freeing about that is that you and I don't have to have all of the answers. But if you want to be wise, you just need to le listen to those who can speak into your life and direct you in the right way. So they find these seven guys and they're like, hey, we're going to do this. Everybody seems to be happy about it, about dealing with this problem. Look what happens in verse eight. It says, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. 
Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. If you pause there, give me your attention. Last thing I want to tell you about solving problems is that God wants me to display compassion. Let me explain this. Now, 35,000 feet for just a second. This section ends the first part of the book of Acts. Remember in Acts chapter one, I put it in your notes where Jesus says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. These are not just um, Jesus saying these words. That becomes the outline for the book of Acts. The first six chapters of the book of Acts, and there's uh, also including chapter seven, which is the sermon that Stephen gives. This is all the Jerusalem section of the book of Acts. After Stephen's sermon and Stephen's death, we have persecution that arises in chapter eight. So there's three things that happen that cause us to move to a new section of the book of Acts. There is the death of Stephen at the end of chapter seven. There's the persecution led by Saul of Tarsus in chapter eight, and then the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in chapter nine. So it moves from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria that we see in chapters eight and nine, and then it starts going out to the uttermost parts of the earth starting in chapters 10 and beyond when the Gentiles start receiving the message of the gospel and being uh, converted. Now, let's get back to our text. There's something important I want us to see. There's a group of people that Stephen is debating with called the synagogue of the freedmen. Okay, back in the times of the old covenant, the old Testament, there was one place to worship, the temple. That was it. There were no synagogues. You worshiped at the temple. However, after the Babylonian captivity, when the temple was destroyed in 586 BC, and then there was a 70 years of captivity before the uh, Jews were allowed to come home, they developed, after the captivity, the idea of synagogues, and that is meeting places for Jews to gather when they were scattered throughout um, the known world at the time. Now, because so much of what's commanded uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, for Jews are, is personal. Personal times of prayer, personal times of devotion, personal times of Bible study and uh, knowing the word of God. But what they did with the synagogues is that they were able to meet the mandates of prayer and Bible study with the added element of uh, communal living. And so they were able to meet together and have fellowship together. Uh, and this is especially true, not just in Israel, but when people were living in different cities. That's why, and we'll see this in future weeks when we start seeing the Apostle Paul go to different cities um, outside of Israel throughout the Roman Empire, every city he goes to, there's, there's a synagogue because all you needed was 10 Jewish men and you could start a, you could start a synagogue. And so that's what, was, that's what was happening there. So now, and this was really helpful because it allowed you to have um, communion with people and, and fellowship with people. When, especially when you were outside of Israel, other parts of the Roman Empire. Once again, all this began under the Medo-Persian Empire and then later continued and thrived under uh, the, Greek, the Grecian Empire with Alexander the Great. At the time of the writing of the Book of Acts, which is, um, I don't know, 50 AD or so, um, we're told that there were 390 
synagogues in Jerusalem alone. The synagogue of the freedmen was a synagogue that was made up of people who had been slaves in the Roman Empire but had been freed. Now, some of the people in this synagogue, you see where they're from. Some were from Cyrene, some were from Alexandria in Egypt, uh, some were from Cilicia and others in Asia. That's Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Now, that should be of particular interest in us, Cilicia, because Saul of Tarsus was from Cilicia. Tarsus is a town in the region of Cilicia. And some have suggested that the synag- this synagogue was the synagogue that Saul of Tarsus attended. We can't be sure, although there are some clues that we get, uh, nothing to be dogmatic about, but it does fit the events of chapter 7 because when, after Stephen's death, we find that there's a young man named Saul who's holding everyone's coats. Why would he be there at all unless he was either one of the people that was arguing with Stephen or he was there when people were arguing with Stephen? So speculation for sure, but an interesting idea. Now, the accusation against Stephen is nothing new. It's the same charge they made against Jesus when he was on trial. They accused Stephen of three things, blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses and or the law, and then blasphemy against the temple. What he says in verse 14, with the the accusation, they say that um, they accuse Stephen of saying that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that is the temple, and will change our customs. This is very important to us Because number one, it's not exactly true. It's not what Jesus said. But two, in Matthew 24, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which is what happened. On the 9th of Av in the Jewish calendar, 70 AD, the Roman 10th legion came in, led by Titus Vespasian, who later became emperor, um, and wiped out the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Now, This also means that the disciples of Jesus were teaching the words of Jesus that are recorded in the gospel right after the resurrection. And this is really important because there are people, and if you watch like some, you know, nonsense documentaries, they'll say, well, you know, after a hundred years, the idea of the resurrection, you know, came up and then they started developing these teachings. No, we are weeks after the resurrection, a couple of months at most, and they are preaching the resurrection and they are teaching the words of Jesus that he spoke to the disciples to other leaders in the church. And that's why I just, uh, it's so powerful. And then I just want to take this last verse uh, before we close, that when they saw Stephen's face, it was like the face of an angel. Why does Luke make mention of that? Because when Moses went to meet with God, we read this in the book of Exodus, that his face would glow with a brightness reflecting his time with the Lord. In in fact, in Exodus 34, I put it in your notes, it says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Luke is showing us that Stephen is not in opposition to Moses. He is modeling Moses' time with God as Stephen has spent time with Jesus. And we'll see that at the end of chapter seven as well uh, before his martyrdom. But I believe there's something really important that I think is so powerful for us. And that is, he was being falsely accused. And he wasn't angry. He wasn't bitter. He was free. And it gave him this opportunity to share his faith. Listen, sometimes problems that we deal with are caused by emotions that are out of control. I love this passage in Proverbs 14 that says, A sound mind makes for a robust body, but runaway emotions corrode the bones. Have you ever noticed that emotional decisions usually are the ones that we regret? 
And I have people tell me this all the time, you know, pastor, I'm just not feeling it. Listen, your feelings are the worst indicator of what you should or shouldn't be doing. You know why? Because your feelings change all the time based on the same situation. And listen, a lot of times they're unreliable and emotions are good and they're God-given and all of that, but they cannot be in the driver's seat when it comes to decision-making because our emotions, even with the best of intentions, are fickle at best sometimes. You ever make an emotional buying decision? Some of you drove to church in your emotional buying decision, right? And you think about it every time, like, what in the world was I thinking, you know? And uh, you, you, ever, um, you ever do some emotional eating? You know, the, no, those, the, you, you, know you, you, you tell somebody, man, I just was so upset, and I did some emotional eating. Like, nobody thinks, oh, they must have had cauliflower and kale, right? You call somebody, like, what are you doing? Like, oh, I'm eating a pizza and Twinkies and a milkshake. Like, ding, 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 emotional eating going on here, right? We get that. Because we, and we realize that we've got to do what's wise and then have compassion because sometimes other people are struggling. You know, there's people that are going through things and we need to give people, we need to do our best to give people a little bit of grace, even if they're being confrontational. And listen, that's a lot easier said than done. But you will always have problems if you respond in kind when someone is aggressive. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, let me, let me tell you how I experienced this. A while back, I'm driving on Pines Boulevard, and I could take you to the very spot where this happened, but I cut this guy off so bad. I mean, so bad. I mean, I was totally in the wrong. I just didn't see him. The guy was furious. He started saying things about me and my mother that I just can't even repeat in church. And, uh, and so now, which, whatever. But the problem is, is that we kind of get, there's a light. And I pull up to the light, and he pulls up to the light at the same time. And we're both the first ones. And he turns to me, and he says this. And so I roll down. I don't know why I do this. No one has, I just, because doing this doesn't make the, you know, so it's, it's like, Apparently, I drive like a 1973 Pinto. So I'm rolling down my window. And, uh, and, then, and then he just starts telling me everything that he thinks about me, things I didn't even know about myself. And so, and he's just really going for it. And, and I say to him, and I say, hey, you're absolutely right. I'm so sorry. It was totally my fault. And then he just keeps going for it. And I'm like, hey, listen, you're absolutely right. I'm so sorry. It was my fault. And when he hears it, he has no idea what to do because I have acknowledged that he's right. And so he's like, and then, and so, um, and I'm like, dude, I'm so sorry. You're right. Yeah. It's okay. Be more careful and have a nice night. And this guy went from saying things about my mom uh, to then just wishing me a nice night. And I, I'm, I'm sure he, if, he, if I hung out a little more, he would have told me my mom was delightful, you know? And, um, and, so, and so, but listen, if you want to solve problems, we have to rise above emotions and be wise because someone has to decide to be the mature one and have compassion and be forgiving. And when you do, listen, when you do, you're gonna be free. 
Some of us have conflicts in our lives that are tormenting us. And the only way to be free is to be like Stephen. And listen, he had the face of an angel, and that doesn't mean how he looked. He had the face of an angel because he was not carrying a 500-pound weight. He had let all of that go, and he was free. He didn't have resentment or bitterness or anger. He wasn't holding on to all that unforgiveness. He was free, and if we want to be free, we have to follow his example. Listen, it's time to forgive the people who hurt us and let go of everything that we've been holding on to. Listen, maybe it's time to forgive a former boss, a former spouse, a former friend. And I know it's easier said than done. I know. But you're setting yourself free. And listen, are you willing to forgive? And I, once again, I get it. It's difficult. But are you willing to forgive someone for the sake of you being let free, set free from the prison of misery, revenge, and hate, and unforgiveness, and bitterness? It's no way to live. Um, so, there's a passage in the Gospel of Matthew that I've always taught a certain way. And it wasn't until I really did kind of a deep dive on it that it totally changed my perspective. And here, the other part of the deep dive, and this was a few years ago, I was hurt so deeply that when I went back to this passage in Matthew 18, I feel like I had never been reading it correctly until I read it again on the other side of pain. Peter asks Jesus, it's not in your notes, but just jot it down, Matthew 18. Um, Peter asks Jesus, how many times do I forgive my brother when he sins against me? But here's the thing. And Jesus says 70 times seven. And here's how I always took that. I always took that as, hey, my friend, he did some knucklehead thing. Hey, man, I forgive you. And then he does another dumb thing. Hey, man, I forgive you. And then he does like this crazy thing. Hey, man, I forgive you. That's not what's being spoken. What he says, what Peter says is, and, and you'll see this when you spend some time looking at it. He says, and if you read the other gospel accounts that talk about this, he says this. He says, he says to Jesus, Lord, how often do I forgive my brother when he sins the same offense? Seven times? This, was the, this isn't, he sins seven times in seven different ways. It's how do I forgive the person the same Thing. It's about forgiving the same thing because, and once again, this is what happens on the other side of pain is that you start seeing things a little bit differently and that you realize on the other side of pain that you have to forgive the same, the one thing, not seven things, the one thing that happened. You have to forgive that multiple times a day so you don't let bitterness start getting a root in your heart. You take, you take hold of those thoughts and you say, no, 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 you're not taking root here. I'm going to forgive. And you make a conscious decision to forgive. And it's like, but this constant pain comes in. You keep remembering the thing that happened. But you know what happens when you keep deciding to forgive? And maybe it's 10 times a day you think about it and you decide that you're going to forgive. Well, it goes from 10 times a day to a couple times a day. And maybe it's a few times a week. And then maybe it's once a week. And then maybe it's a couple times a month. And then it's, it's, um, you know, hey, you've gone two weeks without even thinking about it. And then a whole season goes by and you're like, wow, I haven't thought about that in so long because you made a decision for forgiveness to take root. And by the way, it's not that you're saying, oh no, I just accepted that what they did was okay. No, 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 it wasn't okay. But you just made this choice that you're not in the revenge business. You're in the freedom business. And God is inviting you and me and us to be free, to live a life that most people only dream of. A life that isn't tied down by baggage, 
that's keeping us from experiencing God, everything that God has for us. This is the life that you and I have always wanted, and it's available to us, and it's on the other side of forgiving, 70 times 7. And listen, this is why Stephen can walk in even when he's accused, and he has no weight. He's just, he's free. And that's why, while they are angry and venomous towards him, he has the face of an angel because he doesn't wish any evil on them. And a person who can do that is not only free in that situation, but they will be a peacemaker into every room they walk into. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you so much. Thank you for your incredible love for us and that you don't leave us to carry these weights when people have sinned against us or let us down or um, said terrible things, whatever it is, God. We just want to leave it at the cross. God, we acknowledge that however anyone has sinned against us, that we've done worse to you and you have forgiven us anyway. So God, help us. Help us to live a life that's free, that we can live without revenge or anger, bitterness, resentment, and instead we can live a life that we can be peacemakers because we have peace with you. And even when people have hurt us, we have made peace when it's possible. God, do that work, we pray. We prayed in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.